You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Thursday, November 16th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation and the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy hosted a seminar with Maria Repnikova, Assistant Professor of Communications at Georgia State University and author of Media, Politics, and China, Improvising Power Under Authoritarianism. Ash Center Director Anthony Sage moderated. Let's listen in. Introducing uh, Maria, I just need to thank our co-sponsors, which is the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies, and also the Shorenstein Center on Media Politics and Public Policy. And I also want to thank the HKS uh, China Society for their help in uh, organizing this. Um, today's talk is being uh, audio recorded, and also there may be some photos for non-commercial uh, purposes. So um, we're very lucky uh, to have here today, and this is the book on which uh, the talk uh, will be based, uh, Maria Repnikova, who's currently teaching as assistant professor at uh, George State University. Um, she works on a range of issues, global communication, uh, and one of her strengths is the comparative uh, nature of her work. Uh, with Russia and China, but also more broadly in authoritarianism. I think what is interesting in, in this work, and you'll, you'll see this uh, in the talk and the presentation, is it really is um, part the next step in contribution to ways of trying to think about China, which have gone beyond the kind of dichotomies of state, society, or opposition between state and society, and also the discussions about resilience and resistance. And I think what we're now beginning to see from a number of younger scholars who have the great opportunity to do detailed fieldwork and research in China is a more sophisticated picture emerging about the interconnectivity, in some ways, in some areas, a symbiotic relationship between society or groups within society and the state. And so rather than always pitching it in terms of some kind of conflictual relationship, it's not to say, and no one, of course, is suggesting that there's an open civil society within China, but there's clearly emerging from research like Maria's that she'll talk about today, a more sophisticated understanding of how different groups actually can influence uh, policy, can actually influence government uh, activities and uh, projects. And that what we get is a much more um, colored picture rather than a stark black and white description of um, the way society engages with uh, government or with different government agencies. It was something I looked at a very long time ago, uh, looking at some of the early NGOs that developed in China. Um, Xing Jie Liang was one of the earliest people to talk about what he called institutional amphibiousness. Um, one of the sad facts, of course, with PhDs is you always have to come up with an unwieldy phrase uh, <laughs> which marks your terrain out from the terrain of others, and so we're littered with all these phrases. But I think where our research is beginning to go is showing this interpenetration of state and society and the way that they interact 
and feed off one another. And what we have today with Maria's work is a very uh, interesting account of that, looking at the role of crystal intellectuals and also looking at their role in a couple of particular uh, dramatic instances uh, in China. I won't tell you which ones because I don't want to steal her thunder as she talks <laughs> about this. But please join me in welcoming uh, Maria to speak with us uh, this afternoon. Thank you. Well, thank you. So thank you so much, Tony, for a great introduction and for basically summing up my arguments. <laughs> <laughs> I guess my, ta that. my talk is going <laughs> to get a little bit easier now. But uh, yeah, today I'm going to present you the key um, facets of this argument in more detail. Basically, what Tony mentioned about this interdependence between state and society through the prism of critical journalists. And I'll walk you through it through various empirical examples from the book concluding with a little bit about Russia, because I do some comparisons between China and Russia, so to give you a sense of how those two cases differ, and some implications, and we'll open it up for hopefully a lot of questions. So to start with, um, as many of you are aware, the common depiction of Chinese media um, in popular press, but also in much of the scholarship, is that of a fearful, loyal agent of the despotic party state that exudes little tolerance towards criticism. So the common depiction is that of the media as channeling official propaganda, as being silenced by censorship, or threatened by coercion, and essentially Chinese journalists existing in one of the most restrictive environments when it comes to press freedom. So alongside with countries like Sudan, Iran, you know, the very, very kind of dark corners of press freedom rankings, so to speak, tend to be ranked at the very bottom. And when we hear about dissidents or voices that tend to go against the system, the kind of really radical voices come to mind. For example, Ai Weiwei, right, the Chinese artist. I think many of you know who he is, and I have a nice picture of him here maybe we'll get to, but uh, essentially him really saying no to power, right, directly and uh, uncompromisingly through his art, but also through social media activity and so forth, he kind of stands against the system as a solar kind of unit, and he's very much worshipped, right, by Western media, artists, and society more broadly. But in between this kind of um, sort of di dichotomy of collision, right, between this omnipowerful state and the few isolated dissident voices, there's a practice of what I refer to in my work as critical journalism that evolved in China over the past several decades. It didn't just start you know, recently, it's been going on for quite some time and evolving, reinventing itself. This practice, in my view, includes investigative reporting, in-depth reporting, and also opinion pieces on contentious social issues. And those issues, of course, evolve over time depending on what Chinese society is concerned with. So some examples that I have there, uh, they include environmental pollution and food safety crisis, so a lot of scandals with how safe the ingredients are and uh, checking on basically holding various companies and um, industries accountable for that, but also um, all sorts of issues related to social inequality, right? Access to education, um, hospital violence, access to right healthcare, and so forth. A lot of different issues that common Chinese citizens are concerned with, but they don't necessarily touch on the most sensitive matters, like Tibet, Taiwan, Xinjiang, separatism, all kinds of direct challenges to the party state. So a lot of those matters that kind of reside in this gray zone where critical journalism um, exists and has been evolving for, for quite a long time to this day, even though the pockets of this critique are shrinking, as I'll talk about uh, further on. So in this, in this work, I was interested in to explain to what extent and why you know, the Chinese party state that tends to be so suspicious of liberal media, of critique of Western journalism practices, why would it tolerate some of these pockets of critical journalism in the Chinese context? So what's the motivation for that? And why would journalists who have so little chance for changing the status quo, changing the political system, and facing so many risks in doing this kind of work, why would they still engage in some of this intellectual work and this writing that tends to be somewhat critical um, of, this, of the issues of governance? So not the system itself, but at least some of the governance failures that are continuing to arise in China. 
And most importantly, I wanted to theorize about their interaction, this idea of interdependence. How do we theorize about their coexistence over a certain time period to this day? Like, what kind of features does it, does it carry? And more broadly, if you think beyond China, how does journalism, um, journalistic resistance, practice or manifest itself uh, in repressive regimes? So beyond China, if you take other cases, what can we learn from China? What kind of you know, characteristic facets, um, variables, if you will, we can take to compare it to other cases? So as Sonia already alluded to, the key arguments presented here is that uh, the, I, I sort of refer to this relationship of, what's the, okay. Oh, all right, that's it. I refer to the relationship between critical journalists and the party as not so much as that of complete contestation or kind of warfare, so to speak, between the dissidents and the state, but more so of a fluid partnership, a flexible partnership where the authorities, mainly central state and journalists, are joined together by a shared mission of improving governance in an ambivalent sense. So governance issues in a broad sense and they change over time. So I'll talk about the kind of issues that they work on together. And the reason why this relationship functions and kind of continues to reinvent itself is largely due to the flexible nature of this arrangement, what I call guarded improvisation, where a lot of their negotiation takes place through various creative acts uh, that are improvised on daily basis, um, sometimes even on hourly basis vis-a-vis -vis each other under a close uh, supervision of the state. So in the, in the further on kind of slides that are going to come up in a minute, <laughs> I'm going to talk to you more about, <laughs> maybe, I'm going to explain to you in, in detail how I go about sort of defending this argument with various examples. But before that, I wanted to just explain how I got there. So the field work I did for this book, uh, it was about 12 months. I spent mostly in Beijing, but I interviewed journalists from a variety of media outlets. So most of the so-called critical journalists, they reside uh, on, in commercialized media. So if we think about many of you, especially Chinese audience here are familiar, obviously, with Caixin, Caijing, Nanfang Zhongmo, which is now fading, but used to be very important in uh, the Guangzhou media scene. All of them have major offices in Beijing, and they travel back and forth. So I tried to capture them as much as I could and talk to them in depth. The interviews lasted from two hours, sometimes to a whole day of activities. I attended various investigative journalism conferences that were held until recently on annual basis, uh, organized by universities and activists, and they gather people together to talk about you know, what got done over the year, like what kind of issues got exposed, what kind of issues were missing, what challenges journalists face, and how they should move forward. So it was a really interesting participant observation experience for me um, in this realm. And on top of that, I interviewed officials as well. So it was much harder to access them, but I did speak to a number of officials at the propaganda department, the central level, the gap that manages the press, um, and also a number of officials responsible for the case studies that I tackle in the book, which are the Wenchuan earthquake and uh, repetitive coal mining disasters. So the, the continuous disasters that are victims of 50 and, and up, so looking at kind of the major ones with lots of, you know, fa uh, uh, a lot of de dead people and also lots of um, investigation by the press, but also looking at the earthquake as the one kind of major natural disaster with lots of man-made implications, namely the collapse of the schools, which killed over 5,000 children, infant children, I think many of you, again, are aware of that case. And then I conclude with uh, some interviews drawn from Russia, where I spent time as well in Moscow interviewing journalists that also fall into this realm of critical reporting. So they, are, they embark on investigative journalism primarily for the most critical outlets that exist in Russia. They tend to be all based in Moscow, so they're very much capital center, which is very different from China, at least until recently when we had Guangzhou and Beijing and now Shanghai, but it's you know, less diverse in that sense in, in Russia. And I also have an example of Soviet Union where I contrast this role of the media in facilitating democratization, so to speak, so the collapse of the Soviet Union, and uh, with that in, of China, right, where the media continues to be a partner of the state. So I guess I'm going to go on with explaining the argument. <laughs> I think it's important to mention that most recently with the crackdown on traditional media and also just the dying off of traditional media in China, there are new outlets that have emerged that embark on some in-depth reporting, especially Feng Pai is a case study I've been 
developing a different project recently out of Shanghai. It's completely state-funded, but um, they do a lot of investigations outside of Shanghai. So they don't critique Shanghai government, but they go around to various regions covering uh, governance failures. So I think it's important to note that there are new outlets while old ones are fading. So to start with the cooperation argument, like the idea that they're, they're, they're working together on certain governance matters, I argue that the party state grants journalists an ambiguous consultative role within the system and consultative, I'm borrowing from the term consultative authoritarianism, right, that came up recently, I guess in the past five years, in depicting Chinese regimes. So I'm kind of borrowing that term to talk about journalists as being so-called consultants of the party state. And then journalists themselves align their agenda to that of the central state. So as you see here, those kind of Lego toys coming together as the two actors, and obviously they're very diverse actors within those two groups, uh, as working together on certain governance goals. So to start with the party state and what I mean by them as kind of engaging journalists, as many of you, again, are familiar probably with the term Yuninti and Du supervision through public opinion, uh, the term that's unfortunately is now fading, but it used to be very uh, prominent in various discussions of the media, in, at conferences that I attended, as well as in textbooks and speeches that were delivered by high-level officials. Essentially, it refers to media oversight in the Chinese context. It's a very vague term because it doesn't have specificity of the media in it, but it's supervision through public opinion where the media is supposed to primarily provide oversight over local level governance. So again, the very familiar idea for the studies on fragmented authoritarianism, the idea that you should really supervise only certain levels of the state and report back um, the governance failures you uncover to higher level authorities who would in turn punish the officials and then present a more responsive vision of themselves. So they're responding to public concerns, they're um, effective and they're admired by the people. That's the kind of the, the idea, the goal of allowing for some of this local level supervision and also for gaining public opinion feedback. So just learning what the public grievances are, uh, both through social media outlets, but also through traditional press in the past. It used to be kind of a channel to understand what are concerns, what are people thinking about, how to fix that. And the key term that comes up in all those discussions is constructive role of the media. Again, it's a term that's somewhat maybe alien to us in this context, but the notion of constructive is that, uh, as one official noted, you shouldn't be cursing for the sake of cursing. Once you point out a failure, you should figure out how to fix it. So journalists are sort of endowed with this pretty heavy responsibility of both highlighting errors but also finding solutions, which is a very different model of journalism from something we would find, again, in the Western context of watchdog journalism, where the idea is, is mainly to just showcase what went wrong, not to report and explain how to fix it. It almost That's why it really refers to this idea of consultants. They're consulting the state on how to address uh, various issues. And the journalists, uh, they, their perceptions, their understanding of their political role in the system and their conception of this concept fit under this broader umbrella of change makers within the system. As uh, one of these activists I've interviewed for a long time who organized these conferences on investigative journalism mentioned year after year, I don't want to be a dissident critiquing China from afar. I want to remain within the system and contribute to uh, the society from within. And this is coming from someone who is now turning quite cynical. His conferences have been canceled year after year. He hasn't had much luck in publishing his books, and he wasn't even able to teach in the past year due to the political climate. So it's not something uh, coming out of someone naive or who hasn't experienced the hardships of working within the system. But nonetheless, he, he sees himself as if he's exiting, he's being cut off from the whole sphere, unable to contribute. More specifically, this kind of change-making within the system manifests itself in this notion of improvements versus reviewing and focusing on local-level failures. So the improvements, is, it resonates with this idea of consultants again. The idea that uh, one should contribute to certain change in a more positive, um, kind of balanced way. And part of it is, of course, self-censorship because you don't want to get in trouble by being too critical, too overt. But part of it is also this inherent belief that one maybe needs to be providing something deeper than solely you know, exposure of failures. And that's how many of these editors express themselves and explain the difference between watchdog journalism in the West versus China, where in the West it's sufficient, again, to expose things as they are. In China, you need to 
path of development and many uncertainties and just a lot of instability all around, it's important to be more balanced. And by balance, uh, uh, basically I mean both providing certain solutions, as I found in my analysis of reports. Many of the reports at the very bottom of the, of the analysis, they have actual uh, recommendations of how to fix certain issues. So with coal mining disasters, uh, Taizing at the time basically recommended the state to commercialize the industry. It was very much advocated by that magazine, by the editor at the time, Fushu Li, and they pushed out this agenda year after year, unfortunately, or fortunately, depends on your perspective, they failed, so the state didn't incorporate that uh, advice, but they really read almost like consulting briefs rather than journalistic articles. They kept advising on the same agenda uh, over and over, pushing for a certain strategy. But when this kind of agenda is not expressed directly, oftentimes uh, the improvement is uh, being channeled through comparison. So for example, after the Wenchuan earthquake, a lot of reports drew comparisons to Taiwan, Japan, and other places on how reconstruction should take place. So instead of critiquing the government head on, we suggest that you know, maybe we could learn from other places uh, very softly. So it's very much a kind of a subtle way of learning and not critiquing head on. And even if you're not able to provide any solutions or any examples of learnings, a hopeful tone is often present in those reports. So instead of suggesting something quite negative in a sort of desperate sense, uh, there's often hope that's manifested in those articles. So just to give you sort of an ironic example about GDP numbers this past summer, talking to a young journalist at Taishin, she, she mentioned how Western media talks about GDP numbers oftentimes in terms of the slowing down of the GDP and the economy itself. So the impending crisis and things to watch out for, whereas Chinese media tends to talk about stability, stable numbers, GDP numbers are stable. Uh, so that's a, it's a very different perspective. I mean, the numbers are presented as the same, but the framing is different. When I asked her whether she was consciously aware of, you know, this kind of uh, framing, she said she wasn't. That's something she kind of came naturally to her. But once we sort of untackled it during the interview, you know, she laughed as well, saying, well, yeah, I guess it is something that we're almost ingrained to do, that we don't want to sound too critical or negative. Um, other than this improvement, there's this focus on local level issues. And by local level, I mean provincial level and below. So many of those issues are still quite large, you know, important. They they're not necessarily tiny kind of level matters, but they can also involve high-level provincial officials. And more recently, we see some exceptions to this local level dynamic with the anti-corruption campaign, when Xi Jinping is, uh, you know, pointing to certain officials that should be supervised. And Taishin, in particular, has been getting messages uh, and phone calls about sort of digging into those officials. So when I asked journalists about this dynamic, they, they framed it as something like being invited to help. So this is, uh, you know, they're excited to pursue those investigations, but it's not the same idea as being the first to find um, you know, the person guilty or to find this whole crime to uncover it as a journalist. It's much more exciting than being told, you know, who is guilty in the first place. But it's still interesting because they never got to do those high-level cases in the past. But for the most part, the focus is on local-level failure, and the higher you go up in responsibility chain, the more diffused it becomes. So, for instance, with mining disasters, you know, most of the blame went on local mine managers, and there were specific names, and everything was discussed in more depth. But the higher up um, the, the kind of the ranking responsibility went, the less you knew about who is actually responsible. So if, if we go up to even provincial government and the central level government, you have no idea who to reach to, who is the individual, what's, what's the name, you know, who would one hold accountable. Uh, so that's a very interesting di dynamic where most of this conference is also really focused on very specific instances and scandals, not going for the systemic errors, not highlighting the, the failures of the system as a whole. So. Until now, I think the, the dynamic in this picture sounds almost too perfect. These two actors just come together and help each other out. And of course, it's not exactly the case because they face a lot of tensions and uh, disagreements about what and when and how should be supervised, to what extent, and what should be sensitive when. So all those different uh, ideas that change, and they're very, they're very fluid. So even though more broadly there's this framework of cooperation, there's quite a bit of tension that underpins this, this partnership, which I talk about in terms of guarded interpretation. 
to start with the official set of improvisation when it comes to media oversight. The very endorsement of media supervision is, is very ambiguous. As I already alluded to this term, it's really broad and not, not specific, but most importantly, the policy of media oversight in China remains at the discourse level. So there's no law that protects journalists, so there's no press law, even though many activists have pushed for it, but it hasn't come, it hasn't materialized, and I don't think there's any hope for it uh, to materialize in the near future. So for now, everything is at the level of words, language. So the way that a lot of these uh, journalists and scholars that decipher the policies by looking very closely at every tweet that they, they might you know, get their hands on to see if the term appears there and under what context. So just to give you an example of the recent Xi Jinping speech, 19th Party Congress speech, uh, the term Jinping Tiandu only appeared in a very big paragraph about uh, Tiandu more broadly, so supervision of all kinds. You know, there are all kinds of societal channels for supervision that are supposedly encouraged. And Yuling Tiandu is mentioned there at the end of that paragraph. But there is no mention of Yuling Tiandu in terms of media policy. So when it talks about media policy, only propaganda or guidance of public opinion is now mentioned in Xi Jinping's speeches, which is something that's different from before. So under Hu Jintao, you saw Yuling Tiandu appearing in different contexts, in more, more diverse contexts, and talking about media policy itself which was very hopeful, I think, for some journalists, at least some scholars, uh, in terms of President Xi, hoping that he's going to pick up on that and expand that space. But that didn't happen. So, it's, you know, that's just an example of how you work hard to understand what this endorsement looking like and how fluid it is. So a new leader or even the same leader might choose to backtrack on this policy and simply delete the words and it's, it's, no, it's no longer there. And then one has to be more careful in terms of interpreting uh, the rules of the game. But most of this improvisation happens at the level of restrictions. So as I'm sure as many of you are familiar with Chinese censorship, what we hear about is mostly deletions, like things getting deleted uh, in a very aggressive and sophisticated manner. So it's something that is talked about, I think, throughout uh, in, um, in the press as well about the Great Firewall and so forth. But journalists talk about uh, not so much the deletions, although now they talk about that too, but about preemptive censorship. So the idea of being already in the field, investigating a story, spending a lot of energy and resources on a certain subject, investigative reporting requires a long time, and then being basically called at the, in the middle of that and told to come back to the office, cut the story, and uh, forget about you know, forget about it ever happening. That's one of the most stressful, I think, and uh, devastating aspects for being a critical journalist. In China, in about 50% of their stories don't make it into print, so which really suggests that preemptive um, control is quite strong, and that number, of course, is, is not completely concrete, people change uh, in terms of their interpretations, but most of them say, well, about half, so it's kind of 50-50 chances of getting something in. And the restrictions are being delivered through text messages, now through WeChat groups and circles, they're being delivered by the phone, and there's a constant um, sort of signaling coming from the state, various regulatory bodies of the state are informing editors, which then informs journalists about what and how not to report, so very much a preemptive manner. And journalists are smart enough to decipher some patterns in preemptive censorship, which again suggests that there's a lot of um, ad hoc kind of uh, negotiation of the boundaries on behalf of the state. The first pattern is that when something becomes very exciting or widely discussed on Weibo, uh, most of these reports end up being censored in traditional media. So no investigations because the issue that's even local or you know, a small scale scandal becomes a big national scandal when it's discussed by a lot of people. So the perception is that it's sensitive and then a lot of these investigations are being cut um, ahead of time. The second pattern is local level control. So central level authorities might encourage some of these investigations, but because local levels, local level officials are the ones targeted, they tend to really resist uh, supervision. So the, one of the strategies that a lot of editors pointed to is local officials reaching out to their colleagues or uh, connections in the higher level bureaus, uh, propaganda departments, and asking for censorship bans, asking them to delete or to preempt an article from coming out. And if that doesn't work out, there are many other tactics they use, ranging from leaving red envelopes of cash outside of journalists' you know, hotel rooms and then arresting them the next morning um, on charges of corruption, 
uh, which is you know a, an ironic kind of ugly uh, method, but it's been used vis-a-vis uh, -vis many other activists, not just journalists. Uh, you know, physical harassment, but also just intimidation. So following journalists all the way on a train from you know a faraway city all the way to Beijing and just staring them down, intimidating them until they get to their destination in hopes that they will delete the report. So a lot of this pressure comes from this from local level because they are the targets. And if they succeed, they can influence at times uh, you know the 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 outcome of the story. And lastly, the response in the investigation. So once the story comes out, we often don't hear about what happens. Is does the state respond to any of those revelations? or at least acknowledge them. The response, in my view, at least from those two major case studies, suggests that the response is quite ad hoc. So in the case of the earthquake, the immediate reaction was that we should rebuild the schools, right? Make them beautiful, rebuild the schools, and basically propagate this idea to the public that everything is fixed, things are back to normal. But in terms of accountability, which was heavily discussed in the articles, in particular local level education officials were blamed uh, for, this, for, this, for the scandal, they were basically left unpunished. So year after year, I went back asking about this case, and the response I got that we, we cannot investigate this further. It's, it's becoming even more sensitive over time to talk about the earthquake and the way it was handled. And the same thing goes for many other crises, even the recent jail crisis, where you can see an immediate response. Sometimes even someone gets punished. But when it comes to systemic accountability or addressing the failures behind this case um, and preventing it from reoccurring in other regions, that's much more questionable. So the response is kind of a half-cooked deal, which of course is not only unique to China. Many governments would respond, I think, in this way. So we shouldn't necessarily maybe hold China to a higher standard, but it's something to know, to keep in mind that the consultations themselves are not always that effective when it comes to long-term um, solutions and change. So when it comes to journalists and their negotiation in that gray zone, uh, of course, it's not easy for them to play around this ambiguity, but they also find many spaces for uh, reinventing um, the boundaries. So the first step or kind of layer of that is reinterpreting official discourse, or what I refer to as a discourse strategy, using official terms and concepts to hold certain events to get published, to align themselves with official agendas. This is just an example of a, you know, obviously a red label here, advertising the Indian Blue Conference a few years back uh, in Hangzhou, and it looks very official, it's hung up you know, right at the entrance of the university, and they're using that term that used to be uh, very much tolerated, the Indian Blue, um, to advocate for this conference. So it was, it was allowed, local officials were present, and everything looked quite uh, according to script. But then in the informal session, which I attended after hours, they really talked about quite sensitive issues. For example, the role of the media in the collapse of the Soviet Union, which is not something that most people talk about openly. So this was not part of the official agenda, but by using those terms, by being able to hold the conference, they were able to, behind the closed doors, or not really closed doors in this case, but behind the official program, to talk about something that they were quite interested in and that, that was not part of the original plan. So this one particular scholar was talking about her understanding of Soviet history, and everybody around was holding their breath, listening to her, incredibly interested in learning you know, from this case study. So just as the Chinese government is learning from the Soviet model as an anti-model, these journalists were intrigued by learning, you know, learning from the Soviet Union as a potential model, uh, maybe to replicate or to at least be inspired by in some ways. And a lot of the times this discourse um, strategy also applies to publications in the past without using that term. It's very hard to write about watchdog journalism or critical media, but using the term helps to get published, helps hold conferences, events on media ethics, uh, hold certain kind of um, collaborative events with embassies and other you know, foreign agents or uh, bodies uh, that otherwise wouldn't be possible. So this, this idea of discourse, I think, is still important, even though the discourse is changing. So the idea is to figure out what new term you can use, if any, uh, to be able to do that. But most of this improvisation happens at the level of restrictions, so improvising and negotiating control itself. So just to give you a few examples from, in terms of preemptive censorship, how can journalists go about negotiating that? 
um, there are a number of different uh, measures that they take from microblogging to cross-territorial supervision to waiting out censorship. So in terms of microblogging, uh, the first sort of uh, use of that um, platform is to get information, just like officials are learning from Weibo to see which events are becoming hot issues, what to censor. Journalists are trying to understand what's exciting to pursue for their reporting and try to outrun the state and get there first and publish it before they get the censorship ban. But oftentimes the information uh, access also includes some illicit means. For example, a young uh, journalist last summer shared that he got access to a group on WeChat, a police group with a bunch of policemen discussing um, social issues. He hacked into it or got access to it uh, for $40. So he had some connections, I guess, and he was really excited about learning what policemen think about media and activism and protests. And he, I don't know if he ended up getting a story out of it, but the idea that he was able to kind of surveil another group that's supposed to surveil him, I thought was quite ironic and you know, interesting, especially, again, in this given climate that he's a 19-year-old guy just entering the profession and finding creative means to, uh, to do that. Not everybody, of course, is pursuing that, but it's, you know, it's a funny example. But other than that, it's, it serves as a channel for mobilization. In the past, it used to be more Weibo, learning from your colleagues, learning how to collaborate together, what, what, to, what to be investigated. But now it's more WeChat, as Weibo is becoming more complicated and difficult to use uh, due to censorship. But having those closed circles and groups where people discuss amongst themselves and also, at times, leak stories, so censored stories or ideas for stories to try to basically push through censorship bans. And the second idea of cross-territorial supervision is closely linked to that that the idea that I mentioned at the beginning of Feng Kai investigating officials in other regions or cities, but not in Shanghai, that's basically the example of cross-territorial investigation. You don't investigate officials in your own city or region, but you go outward. And the reason is because the first layer of control comes from local level propaganda departments. So to avoid that, you go elsewhere and try to you know, investigate there. And the ideas for those investigations come from colleagues oftentimes who are already censored or from civil society itself. So a lot of discussions uh, with journalists they mentioned how members of the public themselves would travel very far away to see them, to meet them, to advocate their stories. It's not always coming from horizontally, it's often coming vertically from the bottom up. But it's an interesting, I think, feature that's somewhat unique to China. We don't see this in many countries where you have this cross-territorial element of uh, watches of reporting, certainly not in Russia, even though it's also quite decentralized and large. So something about China makes this um, feature feasible. And lastly, the third example I mentioned what is waiting out censorship. As the one journalist mentioned, censorship bans don't have an expiration date, but after a while they become less significant. So of course there are many other issues coming up, so one could wait out uh, a particular time period, but you might wonder what's the point of that, because once you wait out, the story is dead, so why, why would you do that? But uh, many incidents in China are repetitive. So instead of writing on one incident, you would group them together and write a long investigative story of the year, explaining all of those different systemic issues in one piece. And again, Saidin was a good example of that with mining was the investigative topic of the year, coal mining disasters, for several years, I think two years actually. And they talked about many incidents together. They aggregated them. Instead of going for one incident at a time and getting slammed by censorship, there was just one, one long piece. Again, it's something that's somewhat risky because a story could die out. So you might not have that chance to wait out the ban. But I think one sort of learns from this idea that it's very flexible in some ways because the incidents keep happening. The same social issues are of high concern, so you can use and kind of the information you gathered in the past to make a stronger case for the current um, investigations. So lastly, when it comes to negotiation of policy response, that's probably the tightest area when it comes to really pushing back. It's very hard to say something once the government already decided how they're going to manage a certain case or disaster or any sort of incident. But even in these uh, situations, there's some pushback. So when it comes to the earthquake, um, the first reaction after censorship was silence. 
But then year after year, some individual reports, very few would come out and uh, investigate actually the corruption that was involved in the construction of schools. Some of these leaks came out that the schools were, some of them got a lot of money, other, others didn't, and even the ones who got the money were not that safe. So there were kind of allegations that this whole program was not that successful. Of course, the story got banned, but the idea that there was an effort, an attempt or agency to push back an official response, to me, it's still quite significant. But one does have to be cautious in sort of giving it too much emphasis because that space is much smaller or even than the previous kind of layer of just trying to get the story out. So this, this kind of the notion of uh, improvisation in some ways maybe echoes the symbiotic relationship between journalists in the state or NGOs in the state, something that was talked about by other scholars looking at other sectors or uh, spheres of Chinese society. But I think it's important to keep in mind that this relationship is far from equal. So I don't, wouldn't call it symbiotic because it's heavily led and defined by, this, by the party state. So when I refer to this notion of guarded, it's that the party really sets the scope and the pace of improvisation. The very idea of Yulin Jiandu, even if in its most ideal form, is still referring to media investigation that helps the party state. So you're not supposed to do anything that doesn't help the agenda uh, of the government, which is already quite limiting. So even if this kind of the best case scenario, you have a certain scope within which you're able to carry out your work, which is very different from, again, a context um, in the West or in liberal democracy where you don't have those exact boundaries. And journalists, to borrow Richard Kerr's term here, it's the least practical strategy for the structures imposed by the state. So it's like walking the streets of the city in a labyrinth, but not challenging how the city was constructed in the first place. They're just moving around and trying to find ways to maneuver those complicated streets, but not so much to question uh, how and why this came about. And I think it's a good example of that is the Nanfang Zhongmo protest of 2013. I think many of you were watching this case uh, closely. It was an exciting case. And at that time of protest, when Southern Weekly was censored severely and great people came out in support of this uh, very liberal, courageous newspaper, uh, it, some of the Western media tailored as kind of the first step against censorship, that we're finally, there's a revolution, there's a movement, there's something very exciting happening. At that time, I published an op-ed that argued, well, the title wasn't mine, but the argument was that Chinese journalists are not revolutionaries. And basically arguing that a lot of the strategies they use, they echo what I was talking about throughout this book. They're very localized, and they still appeal to the center state in terms of seeking protection to remain within the system. So journalists didn't challenge the whole system at large. They challenged very specific local censor, specific individual, in fact. And they wrote a letter to the central government to appeal for protection and didn't really come out um, to talk to the public. They negotiated behind closed doors and went back to work as usual within days, maybe a week or so. I don't know the exact times, but it was a very interesting case where there was so much hope and anticipation placed in this movement, but in the end it ended up being very similar to this kind of localized and tactical um, defiance that I examined in, in different cases throughout this book. So by one could say this is the most radical case. We haven't seen any more protests uh, led by journalists since then. So even this most radical case is, is rather contained. So just very briefly to give you a contrast, since we, you, you obviously know a lot of the dynamics before my talk about Chinese uh, journalists and their limitations, but what about comparative perspective? How does this fare in contrast to other authoritarian regimes? So I compared this similar dimensions of collaboration, of shared objectives and guarded improvisation, and thinking about Russia, looking at how Russian journalists engage with the state, and I found that their relationship is that of tense, disconnected cohabitation, so rather than a fluid partnership. So what I mean by that is that Russian state and critical journalists, they have colliding objectives. The state wants to use journalists for the purpose of image creation and image of a more democratic Russia, because Russia does claim to be a democracy, and by having some free press, um, it's sort of a symbol suggesting that Russia is, you know, it's, it's not an authoritarian regime. They always decline, deny those claims. Whenever Putin is asked about press freedoms, he says that I have, we have so many newspapers in Russia, I couldn't possibly control them all, even if I wanted to. 
Uh, he always denies that there is any form of control. There is always campaigning because of the number of outlets allowing to persist. And critics themselves, they want to change the regime rather than to contribute to any sort of gradual governance. They don't have those aspirations or patience of uh, Chinese reporters. They want to kick the state head on and change the system. And this is just a little illustration of that. Uh, maybe some of you know this guy with the green face. Nobody knows? So this is Alexei Navalny. He's the, he's the biggest opposition figure in Russia today. Uh, constantly jailed, back and forth between jail and his house. But he's kind of the key leading figure of, of, of protest, and he started out as an anti-corruption blogger. He was a social media figure, half journalist, half lawyer, which a lot of those figures exist in the Chinese space as well. But his strategy is to really tackle the whole system, so organizing protests, mobilizing thousands of people to come out, and protect Putin himself. So the whole system, his Putin's election, the rigged government, and essentially suggests that he should run for president. It's a very different way of handling and um, organizing resistance um, from that of Chinese critics. So they, in some ways, Russian critics, they kind of mirror the idea of a dissident in a traditional sense. That they, are, they define themselves as dissidents, and many of them say that we don't want to be dissidents. This is not something we signed up for. But there are no other government branches that hold um, Putin or the central state accountable. So we're kind of forced into a position of dissidents, even though we'd rather be doing something else. So they took on this role, and they've been advocating it for quite some time now, since Putin took power. And indeed, in contrast to Chinese reporters, they have a lot more space. So they're able to critique Putin himself. They're able to mock him, uh, write about his wealth and so forth. But the sad part or the kind of negative part uh, in the story is that nobody really cares. So the stories come out, and the public doesn't seem to pay attention. They don't really take it further, and the government doesn't listen to them. So there is no really kind of back and forth instrument. And in fact, many Russian, Russian scholars refer to these outlets as islands of press freedom. They're kind of isolated from the state. So they're existing on the, on this, on the outside of the, the mainland. And the state does everything in its power to disconnect the two, so not to allow it to penetrate um, the main uh, continent or the country, right? So instead of this kind of guarded improvisation or back and forth signaling that we see in the Chinese case, especially preemptive signaling, in Russia, what I argue, there's more of a case of arbitrary coercion, post facto control. So journalists don't get as many signals as they do in China. They have more freedom, but they, when they do lose that freedom, it's rather drastic. So many of you, have, again, have probably heard about various murders that take place in Russia. And uh, when you enter the most liberal publication in Moscow, Nova Gazeta, the first thing you see are all the photos of dead journalists who've been killed. As an intern there, you're immediately introduced to the scenario that you're ri risking your life potentially. Of course, it's not every newspaper is not like that, and it's not an everyday scenario for everyone. But it's a very different, I think, entry to profession that one, one would have in the Chinese case, where murders ha this hasn't come up very much in my in my conversations with Chinese reporters. So to conclude. Space for, for questions. Just want to conclude with a few implications just to think of further about this case. If you think about Chinese studies, uh, first in terms of the media, I think it's important to uh, consider supervision as a role that exists alongside propaganda. It's not something that's outside of this uh, mainstream role of guiding public opinion. It's not an independent watchdog role by any means, but it exists alongside in this kind of interesting, uh, ambivalent relationship with this dominant function of guiding public opinion. So that's something that this kind of relationship, interaction, I think persists to this day, and it's something that's interesting to keep. Um, studying to keep watching over how they engage with one another. When it comes to activism or state-society relations, I think this, this book and this relationship between journalists and the state really highlights the importance of ambiguity or uncertainty as, as kind of a both disempowering but also an empowering passage uh, when it comes to activism. So many of the journalists, they talk about obviously the restrictions they face as, as in a very negative sense, but also the idea that there's some flexibility, that you can reinvent and play those games 
in some form, gives a little bit of hope, at least on a routine basis, of uh, surviving in that system, as opposed to having completely transparent rules where nothing is allowed. So rather than having you know, transparency in a negative sense, having some ambiguity can be an empowering feature that's so somewhat counterintuitive, thinking about transparency and kind of freedom of press, again, in, in a democratic context. And lastly, thinking about governance, I think this, uh, this book problematizes this notion of consultative authoritarianism. Because when we think about consultative authoritarianism framework, it was depicted, at least based on my reading, as quite positive. A feature that there's this consultation happening and governance is improving, and as a result, it kind of feeds into this framework of authoritarian resilience. So China is resilient, and there's no sense of fragility in the near or long-term future. But I think because of the vagueness of those consultations, and so much of this so-called input doesn't really channel into policymaking, it's, it's only adapted partially, it speaks to kind of certain fragmentation of this uh, consultation processes and suggests that maybe in the long term, a lot of uh, governance issues are overlooked, which could translate into more fragility and more instability at some point. Not yet, but at some point. So I wanted to conclude there and um, look forward to your questions. Thank you. Well, uh, thanks, Maria. There's a lot to digest there. We do have uh, microphones, so if people have questions or comments, uh, please use the microphone to facilitate. I thought there's a lot of interesting, I think this question of ambiguity you see in a lot of different fields. And uh, people get very good <coughs> at exploiting and using that ambiguity to push ahead different agendas. I think one of the interesting things is that you know, journalists are well aware of the situation they're in, that once the constraints are lifted, um, you see a very different dynamic. I mean, one of the most interesting banners I remember in the 1989 uh, demonstrations was when the People's Daily Editorial Board came out with their banner, which basically said the People's Daily tells lies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're very aware of the yeah. environment uh, they're working in. Yeah. And I had a one, one just uh, practical question and then, and then a couple of comments, and I'm sure people have a lot of questions. I was very surprised at your comments about Pong Pai because <coughs> certainly with print media, that was something they moved to stop because one of the criticisms of Nanfang Joma was, well, you don't shit on people in Guangdong in the south. You go and do that from people in Hunan and Sichuan. So they closed down that potential that you could only report within your own jurisdiction you are registered. Yeah. So I was surprised that Pong Pai is able to get away with this mm -hmm. and that hasn't been curtailed. I suppose the other thing which is interesting maybe to explore in the future is it seems to me that a lot of people who you might not consider as critical journalists in the official structures actually have a dual role that at one level they're embedded establishment intellectuals when they publish in People's Daily. But of course, they're critical intellectuals when they're sending their internal reports. Mm -hmm. yes. And many of those actually, again, it's licensed, mm -hmm. but you know they can be very critical about the things they've just said. Yes, right. And I mean, that's, that's a, an important thing, I think, which is also often missed. Mm -hmm. I also think there's a big distinction. You know, I expect a lot of people, non-Chinese here, when they look at things that cite inside Jing, they tend to look at the English language versions yeah. of it. And again, when you're writing in English, mm -hmm. it tends to be very different mm -hmm. from when they're writing on the same topic in, in Chinese. So, <coughs> and again, but whether they're writing a domestic affair or an international affair, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a lot of variation. But um, please, uh, if just put your hand up. If you, there's a lady here at the front. Just let us know who you are and uh, 
Thank you. I'm Audrey. I'm this year's NUPA fellow with MIT Center for International Studies. Uh, wonderful project, nicely presented. I've learned a lot. Thank you. Um, I think your book is uh, it's focused on the so-called Huwen era from 2002 to 2012. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, uh, at that time, although Chinese news outlets are were also required to toe the party line. There have always been so-called liberal-minded or critical journalists mm -hmm. could find their ways to report the truth. Mm -hmm. But in recent years, they have further, they have been further marginalized. So I don't think there is still the space to criticize. Um, also, you know, because the authorities openly call for so-called absolute loyalty from the news media. So um, what do you think about the change of the role that news media, including the traditional media and social media and new media, could play mm -hmm. in the so-called Xi's new era? Thank you. Okay. Yeah, why not? Okay. You wanna I actually wanted to show you some pictures of the stuff that's happening now. Slide is it on there? Is it just playing? So yeah, thank you for your question about shrinking spaces and you basically suggest that there, there is no more space for critical journalism. I would disagree that there is no space completely uh, because from my field work in the past summer and I went back every year since the Huwen era, era ended uh, to check up on what's happening, a number of practitioners left but they also left for different platforms that are still practicing some form of social critique online but they're not practicing in traditional sense. So they wouldn't fit this exact framework of journalism but it's sort of media activism I would call it. And in fact a number of works came out that argued that in the C era what we're seeing more is media activism versus traditional form of reporting. And um, that's because of this clampdown on traditional media, but also traditional media itself is no longer popular. People don't read newspapers and mm. they tend to mostly get their information from the internet. So, so one of the examples in terms of reinvention of the genre, right? Uh, one of the examples of interesting creative efforts that I found was the boom of nonfiction writing. It's something that I think is not quite happening in this society where you can actually make money from nonfiction writing. And a lot of it is not directly political. Most of it is not talking, again, head on kind of systemic matters. But they're talking about social issues in the same way that a lot of um, investigative journalists used to talk about them. The tradition actually comes from Southern Weekly, but then it became kind of an online platform when they're even forced to talk on some of these people from EG into Q to kind of basically train uh, young people to write non creative nonfiction. So when you write a good story, you can also get shipped by the public. It's a really funny kind of commercial model where, you know, with many things in China, but you can ship the writer and if you ship well and, you know, the writer is shipped by many people, he'll write another story. So it's kind of a, <laughs> an incentive to become a better writer. So the idea that this is kind of another flow of creativity where it's published in, in a very kind of literary sense uh, or, or genre. It's not directly journalism, but the stories, uh, they focus on very interesting social issues, including uh, the camps where they, they train young people to abandon their addictions, for instance, internet addictions, where there are a lot of scandals about the methods they use. The same stories are published in traditional press. Now they're kind of reporting this more literary way on these platforms. They also interview people, but they focus on human interest stories. They don't talk about the crisis uh, in a very direct political way. And that's what everybody mentions, that politics in a pure sense, in kind of direct, narrow sense, is very hard to talk about. Um, another example of sort of what's still happening is uh, some examples of uh, investigative reporting. This is just three cases. 
specific campaign blast really impressed mm -hmm. me with how much investigation was still taking place. I expected there to be almost nothing, but I found that uh, Xi Jinping, you know, Beijing-based newspaper, alongside with uh, students from Sohu and uh, Chongqing, the online platforms that have in-depth reporting um, branches, they went to the field, even though they're not allowed to report. If you're working for an online platform, you're not supposed to be going and getting your original information. You should be only reposting content. But they still went for it and broke the rules, essentially, and reported on this on this matter. With other key cases, there are other examples um, that are quite striking. For example, the hospital case where a military hospital outsourced some of its services to a shady facility in which uh, a young person died from a, basically a fake cancer treatment. And uh, this case doesn't seem political, but the military hospital is political because you know it's controlled by the state, and the idea that it's inefficient and it's you know it's corrupt essentially really uh, has yielded quite a large public outcry on social media. So some of these issues are not as, as obvious unless you live, I think, in China and really recognize those matters as, as your own and um, pay attention to them. The other uh, example that I don't think I have pictured here, so this is just more satire. <laughs> this is su suggesting that you know even if the media itself is not doing as much. These, I, I like especially this giraffe sort of sitting and watching the speech, <laughs> but making fun of, making fun of this uh, very long party congress. And here are some quotes that I gathered just from Weibo, just different quotes of sort of, again, the irony of, of the whole event. So previously the parties were focused on allowing some people to be well off, but now it aims to prevent these people from fleeing, right, the idea of anti-corruption <laughs> campaigns. Or maybe we could hold this conference somewhere else, it would be cheaper and it would you know, probably be better for those reasons. So kind of like soft making fun of sort of media activism genre that other scholars have written about solely focusing on the internet. But a lot of these comments, and especially when it comes to this nonfiction writing, is practiced by former journalists. But I think an important example in, in investigative kind of genre is Chiang Kai, actually. And um, Tony just mentioned that you were surprised about how yeah. they get away with it. Well, one of the reasons they get away with it, and it gets to your second question about the party's kind of um, omni-control, they want to control everything, that on the one hand, they want to control everything, on the other hand, they're very concerned about legitimacy. So even though they want everybody to feel obliged to them, they also want to make sure that people believe them, that you know they care, that people follow their online Weibo and Weixing accounts, that everybody listens to their voices, right? And many people don't care anymore because there's diversity of entertainment available on WeChat. You don't have to look at those government platforms. So essentially, Shanghai was an experiment. It was launched by Shanghai government, completely state-funded, and uh, central government really liked it. And they launched a huge conference in Shanghai attracting propaganda bureaus from all over the country to learn from Shanghai. And mm. why they were so effective is because they published very cute stories they call it purifying politics about Xi Jinping as this really sweet leader who is lovely and uh, all-embracing, but also publishing investigative reports, again, about other regions and cities. So this combination, which is very tricky, it's this really kind of treacherous dance between propaganda and supervision, has been fulfilled by this outlet until now. I mean, they're, they're starting to face a difficult time, I think, because other regions are complaining. Mm. <laughs> they don't like to be supervised. Uh, but I think this points to this notion that even though there's this empathy and control, there's also a fear of losing credibility. And there's also this agenda of really kind of uh, creating new, they call them high energy social media outlets that will really attract public, the public, which, which involves some critique. Otherwise, nobody's going to read it. Mm. So it's a really tricky battle, which I think is we're going to see more of that in the coming years as well. Okay. Yes, there's a gentleman here. Hi, um, my name is Ben. I'm an MPP student here. Um, so I'm interested in this dynamic you're talking about mm -hmm. of um, journalism, you know, moving to the to the online space. Yeah. And I assume when you refer to the government here, it's largely referring to behavior from the propaganda department. Mm -hmm. But now that it's online, it's going to also involve the cyberspace regulator. Exactly, yeah. And when we're talking about corruption, there's mm -hmm. an interest from the anti-corruption agency or maybe the environmental agency mm -hmm. in reporting on certain um, certain mm -hmm. events. Yeah. So 
is it possible to parse a little bit more about which government agencies are acting on which kinds of interests and whether there's a different dynamic there? Yeah, it's a great question. And actually, Shanghai is a good example of how there are often conflicting signals uh, between different agencies when it comes to tolerating some of the critiques. So editors told me that they would receive a sort of more positive signals from the internet uh, administrations. So Wang Chunban would send them kind of more positive sort of or a leeway that suggested they should do more of this reporting and uh, the propaganda department was more negative. So kind of got this very different insights about what they should do, but because they had these conflicting signals, it sort of incited more creativity. Because I thought, well, one bureau allows me to do it, the other one doesn't, so I might as well try it out because I have some, at least, embrace from one agency. So in, in some ways, it's, it's, it's confusing because there are more agencies involved now. On the other hand, you can kind of play them against each other and try to push until you stop, basically. So, and this is happening for other outlets as well, because especially in social media, because they're really getting signals from other various uh, viewers, in particular two or three now. So, I, I, you know, being in, in private kind of conversations with the journalists and having dinner together, they just keep getting messages from different circles. Like one circle says delete, the other <coughs> circle says adjust the story, <laughs> and the other one maybe is still quiet. So there's this kind of intermixing of signals that I think is like sort of an interesting confusion for now. Maybe it's going to clear up in the future and institutionalize itself more. But for now, it also creates a little bit of opportunity to take a, take a small risk. Yeah. Mia? Hi, I'm Yao. I'm a postdoc at the AI Center. So um, I have a question. Um, what is the reason behind the, the Chinese government flexibility in censorship? Mm -hmm. So uh, does uh, the state capacity play a role here? Mm -hmm. And also, Oh, do you think that any other authoritarian regimes can adopt this model? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's a very big question. So in terms of the, the reason for flexibility, um, I think the first reason is that it's, it's more beneficial in terms of adapting to change. So if you're too rigid and everything is you know, held out ahead of time, all the rules are set, you might not be able to adjust to very fast uh, social change that's happening in China, especially in social media. So when I was speaking to officials, they mentioned how various bureaus are hiring new people just to monitor Weibo accounts or even Weixin circles. So their full-time job is just to sit there and look at what's happening and then suggest for kind of little adjustments in policy or in censorship. So I think this kind of preconception is that we should be flexible because otherwise we can't keep up. And also the other part of that is the notion of really being alert to public opinion, kind of feeding off public opinion, learning about it and uh, reacting to it. I think that's something that's very much a feature of Chinese politics, which I don't see as much happening, for instance, in Russia, where public opinion is not taken as seriously, so there wasn't as much emphasis on learning and consciously understanding what, what the public is thinking or hiring all these people to understand public concerns. So part of it maybe has to do with legitimacy, how legitimacy is perceived um, by these different regimes. Legitimacy as kind of coming from the people, uh, from wider public support, versus maybe in the case of Putin, it's more personalistic legitimacy. People support Putin. Um, they admire him as a leader for a long time. He brings certain stability and certain uh, improvements in the economy, at least as, as being projected by the state, and that's maybe enough for now for the public. Uh, so it's very different kind of basis, I think, of legitimacy. That's a big you know, question to untackle further, but um, maybe that's, that suggests for some unique features of Chinese um, system of censorship. Yeah. I was thinking while you were talking of uh, one of my former students who's in state security. And part of his job in the daytime is actually to monitor online discussions. Mm -hmm. And so he says, every day when I come home at 5 o'clock, I feel so depressed. Mm -hmm. And then at 7 o'clock, I watch the national news, mm -hmm. and I see everything is great, and I feel fine. Uh -huh. <laughs> so there was someone here, I think. Yeah. Hi, my name is Brendan. I, I'm a student at Havoc Kennedy School. My question is related to, I guess, uh, journalism, more in general. So I wanted to see your views on related to the tendency that journalists have to propose a solution every time they critique something in China. Mm -hmm. I wonder what your thoughts on these were. Is this? Do you think this could be construed as a progressive form of uh, 
I guess, constructive journalism, or we're using this as repress, uh, re regression from critical journalism that we see in liberal democracies. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. Yeah, it's a great question. Hmm. Um, well, there's, there's been an emergence of um, sort of emphasis on solutions-based journalism. So it's not called sort of constructive journalism in our vocabulary here, but solutions-oriented uh, reporting. And I've read quite a few reports that sort of argue that we should have more of that solutions-based investigations that have a more sort of progressive um, role for reporting, which, you know, fluently we don't have to this extent. So there is kind of this argument that maybe some of this is progressive. It's not all about self-control. But the other side of it is that journalism editors themselves mentioned that if they're not constructive, then they're not going to have any stake in the system. So there's clearly a self-censorship dimension as well, that if you're not careful, if you're not proposing some hopeful at least sentiment in your reports, then you're most likely to be censored or get in trouble. So there's kind of this somewhat tense relationship between this progressive reporting in the sense of doing something for the long term and maybe even more, I don't know, uh, influential than Western-style watchdog journalism, but the other side of it is that would you be able to do something else or would you be willing to do something else if you had the choice? So if you didn't have any control, would they be interested in this constructive reporting or would they want to just take up the highest level of governance and just tackle the issues, expose them and, and let it be without any solutions? So I think we can't quite test it unless we have the yeah. chance to see what happens in a different setting, right? Questions, comments? Yes, uh, uh, my name is Susie. I'm uh, HKI's Mason Fellow here, and I was working as the chief editor of Sina and uh, Phoenix before in Beijing. So I think the problem for Chinese media now is the uh, Chinese government rev they revoke the news license mm -hmm. of some very influential media like. Sina and Phoenix, so we we are not allowed to do the news anymore, mm -hmm. and there is some flexibility for social media, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. But the problem is they are not professional journalists, mm -hmm. and they are not, you know, um, uh, they don't know how to do news actually, mm -hmm. and they are more care about the uh, um, uh, the clicking rate mm -hmm. and not the content. Mm -hmm. So how to deal with the problem? Thank you. I don't know if I can solve the problem, but you point to a very important issue that I think speaks to certain convergence in terms of the challenges that journalism faces both in the West and in China, this commercialization of the, of the news, the sense of the media switching more towards the model of entertainment and, again, focusing on clicks primarily and investor-owned content. That came up a lot uh, in recent conversations, the idea that young people who still want to enter the profession, they have no mentors. So they talked about that and they said, well, we should have something to look, look up to, someone to talk to, someone to train us. But those people are gone, so they either quit or they're disappointed, but the young ones who still dare to enter this field, they don't really have anyone to, not many people to work with. So I think that's a really interesting generational gap as well, that on the one hand there's this commercial sort of intrusion and the focus on the money, on the other hand there's this generational fit as well. But how to fix it, I don't know, it sounds like the more creative maybe forces will try to combine some, some professionalism and the money, which is like the model that many people are going for here as well with startup journalism, the idea of getting some money and doing something very kind of fun and appealing to the public, but also a little bit more in-depth. So you combine different features in the process. So you do a little bit of this, but then a lot of the fun stuff to make up for the cost. Um, but the balance is tricky, and most people won't probably pursue that because it's more politically sensitive. So that's the... I think that's a challenge to watch. I don't really have a direct solution. I think we're going to have to face those tensions for a long time, but not only in China. I think everywhere. Behind you. This whole idea of somebody who's trained, if they are trained as a journalist, 
proposing public policy solutions would suggest that they have to be also trained as a public policy person and i think a journalist who then has to recommend a public policy just sets himself up for becoming the the topic of conversation and being shot down by someone who says that's an absolutely absurd solution for you to suggest it doesn't seem like a good idea to have people you know who are journalists they're just not they wouldn't necessarily have an idea of how to possibly solve a solution solve a problem so so the way that they typically channel solutions is not directly through their own opinions but by invoking experts and officials so the solutions that they propose is not just okay here's what I think personally it's more about here's how this could be solved based on this and this and this research so they're not coming out as direct kind of policy makers if you will but they're quoting the right people so it's very important who quotes so for example in the mining case I noticed that there was one particular official from the security administration he was always quoted so I found him and later on I chased him down and interviewed him and it turns out he changed his opinion by then so he was anti he was anti commercialization but I don't believe it anymore because he didn't want to talk about it but his name came up in all those reports in favor of commercialization so it seems like they found the right kind of people who were high up enough you know within a certain bureau to channel their views and that happens through official voices through experts a lot of scholars so a lot of academics get interviewed and sometimes foreign scholars they really like to invoke foreign examples Western other Asian countries to kind of create a more balanced perspective so they wouldn't be going at it alone because that would indeed sound kind of amateur and probably not very effective yeah you mentioned pollution is one of the issues in China about three years ago there was a wonderful production done called the dome project and it was this must have taken over a year and a tremendous amount of money to put that together so I'm curious as to if you whether you learned how that got squashed so quickly after it was published yeah it was set up by well produced by Kaijing who's a really extraordinary reporter and she worked in Chinese media for a while actually more in official media like CCTV so I interviewed her during the beginnings of my field work and then I was watching you know how the product project unfolded and I think it really features a lot of the characteristics of kind of state media relations that came up came out in this talk so for example her videos the film if you watch it carefully it also has very much a solutions oriented kind of approach she talks a lot about how to resolve the crisis she talks to a lot of officials she interviews many experts it's a very well thought out in-depth film it's not something that's too emotional or personal even though she has an emotional story about her child but it's not directly kind of her story there's a lot more about Chinese society that she taps into and the first reaction was obviously very popular right many people were watching it I don't know how many views it got maybe over a million or it was extremely popular online and then very quickly it got it got squashed as you say so in some ways it kind of invokes the dynamics when something becomes too exciting or too you know much discussed in social media it gets deleted because it starts to become a real sort of social issue in the sense of potentially invoking more public mobilization maybe offline or too much pressure on the state so the decision to delete it wasn't surprising to me because that's something that they do with almost every case that becomes this popular but the irony was that while they deleted this story they also started to address environmental issues more closely so the minister spoke up and there was a lot more kind of sense that we need to engage with this but not directly saying that it's because of her film but you know we need to be thinking about this is the policy we should be considering nobody thanked her directly or she didn't get any awards she actually I think she was under house arrest for some time so I don't know what's what's happening to her now but she wasn't rewarded so to speak but the ideas kind of channeled into some 
higher level thinking or appreciation, but they need more power to reform um, in the environmental sector. So there's this kind of irony of you know, extreme control and also some addressing of the issues indirectly, not directly kind of praising the journalists or explaining to them that it's their good deed that led to this. I know a lot of people had to run off to class, so unless there are more questions, we can carry on, Manfred. Tony set this up as um, a question of the space available for a whole range of different groups, mm -hmm. but but as you were talking, I was feeling more and more that journalists are sort of an exception. Mm -hmm. Like the government could do away with even the most integrated environmental NGOs, mm -hmm. but it couldn't do away with a press mm -hmm. because it needs them to tell its story in a believable way. Yeah, so yeah. I wonder if journalists actually have a, a fair bit of leverage compared to other groups that we talked about? Yeah, it's, it's hard to compare because if you compare it to lawyers, lawyers and journalists, for instance, it seems like lawyers have been under even more sort of constraint, attacks, and uh, facing more retribution from the state than journalists. So if you contrast that kind of case, then yes, journalists seem to have a little bit more uh, flexibility, but I don't know if they're necessarily that exceptional because it's based you know, along all spheres, I think, of thinking in terms of activism. And there's a general sense that the state is not as interested in this confrontation from the bottom up in a way that maybe it, you know, maybe it was, at least in some form, uh, in the past. But I think what's exceptional about journalists as a group as well is that these journalists are kind of global citizens. They're urban, uh, they're very well educated, so they're kind of, uh, they have a lot of different exposure. And uh, they're hard to sort of trick or completely crush with the trick of voices. Even if they don't practice journalism, they may join a company, social media platform, they may go into PR, but it's kind of hard to completely obliterate the group as a whole, I think. It, and it's not really an incentive either because, as you said, we need some more credible outlets to project the state messages. So completely getting rid of any credibility seems like a bad, you know, choice, decision. Yeah. yeah. Just just uh, I can see two hands but no faces. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> My name is Liu Junzai. I'm a PhD candidate in sociology here. My question is about the role of technology played in this game of uh, guarded improvisation. Um, when internet first came out, I think Bill Clinton made this very optimistic observation mm -hmm. or prediction. There will not be censorship in the future. Yeah. And we know that's not the case. The Chinese government on the one hand is adapting so quickly. But on the other hand, we see journalists, activists, exploiting all kinds of new technologies and creating new sets. Mm -hmm. So what is the game go? Wh what is the game now and where is that leading? Yeah, it's a big question. I think you kind of answered it yourself in a way which is very <laughs> discussing the different sides of it, you know, the idea of the government being very adaptive and societal actors being also very skillful and using it to their advantage. So essentially a lot of this improvisation or contestation as well happens in the online sphere mostly, also because most of the media are now online. So almost everything happens within the social media realm uh, rather than physical kind of space as it used to be the case. So where we watch for more sentience and we kind of observe what becomes sensitive, it's all you know online. At least the signs, the signals are coming from the internet. So that's where the kind of the biggest frictions are, but that's also where the space for creativity still, still exists uh, despite the restrictions. Where it's going, I think it's going to become more and more uh, interactive and more tense. That's, uh, that's where I see it going. So the example of all these media outlets like from Fire Emerging, and many other outlets trying to copy them to sort of create these digital-only news outlets. It's a kind of a, a manifestation of this attempt also by the state to create something, right? Credible, only on social media and, you know, exciting, but then also journalists using some of those platforms to say, hey, this might be an opportunity. I can't do traditional reporting and southern weekly, but I might join this platform and still use my skills. 
so again this kind of you know game continues but it, it's also very much kind of a temporal game in a sense that there are stages and phases so if one outlet fades out maybe another one will you know appear so we can't really predict which one will be dominant or which actor will be overweighing or outweighing the other i think this kind of interactions are going to become more and more intense so we're going to see a faster speed uh, more actors involved new bureaus right controlling the internet and the media more different types of media activists and journalists and kind of more waves or sort of branches of interaction. So it's less monolithic, but we're going to see more and more of these kind of different stages, layers, actors. It's very exciting, I think, to keep watching for those spaces. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Uh, I'm Jane Chu. I'm a freelance science writer in Beijing, and I'm, I'm a media fellow. I'm a Knight media fellow at MIT. So uh, you mentioned that the media control model in China and Russia are very different. And I just wonder, in your view, you know, how do you think that is making a difference um, in terms of uh, you know uh, reporters uh, making uh, like uh, causing changes in terms of policies and also the stability of the regimes? I guess another way of putting my question is: if you were to advise authoritarian regime, which model would you recommend? Oh, <laughs> that's, <laughs> a, that's a really serious question. <laughs> wasn't quite. <laughs> So the differences between the models and how they impact reporting. So I think as I kind of mentioned, there was maybe two groups that just mentioned that the distinction between the arbitrary coercion and guarded interrogation is that the key distinction is the signaling part. So in the case of China, there are more signals, uh, which also result in more uh, intensified control. So when you're getting more signals, it means that there are many things you can't do. You have to adjust in advance, right? In the case of Russia, there are fewer signals, which means that you can go higher in terms of investigating power ahead of time. So you, can, you don't have to work so hard to outrun a censorship ban to investigate, I don't know, Baronius, another city in Russia versus Moscow. You can just go for the highest leaders in Russia and just try and see what happens. So in terms of the kind of scope, you know, how far you can go, it seems that in some ways, I think Chinese journalists might think it's more exciting to be a journalist in Russia because you can do more things. At the same time, um, what you see here in the Russian context is that the state is maybe using a more cost-effective kind of strategy, low-cost strategy to control this outlet. So the first strategy is ignoring them, so completely disengaging. These people don't matter, they're not important. There's constant satire that's being channeled by the state, making fun of Russian intellectuals. Uh, one recent example was Putin talking about long-bearded Russian intellectuals. Cut <laughs> your beard and join the masses. <laughs> you're completely useless. You know, you're, you're totally out of this kind of space. You're old-fashioned. Nobody cares about you. And he's really kind of crude in terms of how he discusses these people. You, no, there's no sense of engaging, co-opting these forces. Um, at least, you know, we don't see those signs emerging. So in a sense, it's kind of this low-cost idea. Just ignore them, but then when things get too heated or when some outlet gets to step on someone's nerves for too long, then you start to enforce punishment. And punishment means potentially deleting the whole platform. So they're using more censorship techniques actually adapted from China now. They're trying to delete the entire outlet. They're trying to delete certain messages, but also physical abuse. So that we don't know where it comes from. But Russian journalists, again, as I mentioned, they suffer more physical harassment, ranging from extreme beatings to murder. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's very different um, approach here. And once this is happening, there's no space to negotiate. So once they're punished, there's nowhere to go. Either your outlet is done, your story is done, or your health is gone, you know, if not your life. So there's nowhere to push back. So it's a really different model, in a sense. So I think if you're looking for just control, like in full form, or just making sure that you know you're not shackled or not day-to-day uh, -day kind of spending all these resources and controlling the, the media, then maybe the Russian model is more cost-effective. But <laughs> if you think about what happened in 2011, 2012, that those journalists who were kind of outsiders, right, they were ignored, the idols of press freedom, they came out to protest. They galvanized social movements. 
So in a sense, you're ignoring them for a long time. You're not really getting a good idea about what the public is thinking and how important are those voices, like what's happening to them in terms of the larger context of um, protest movements and um, society, right, civil society. So I think Putin underestimated how, how quickly those grew. And actually, there was some fear in the administration that we didn't expect so many people to come out. And then after that, they started to really control the media even more, but more, more assertively than in the past. So maybe short term, it's more cost effective, but long term, it seems to be somewhat fragile because you don't know what's, you don't have that channel. You don't have the pu public opinion channel feeding back uh, to you to understand like what are the, those voices saying and who are they connecting to. But I think what we're seeing in China now with the shrinking spaces for critique is maybe a little bit more of a Putinist model where, okay, let's just control it more and who cares? Maybe we're, we're not learning everything, but that's okay. You know, we don't need to know all of those things. And I think that's kind of a dangerous trend in terms of long-term governance. Uh, if, they, if there is this kind of borrowing from Russia, long-term there could be more fragility and uh, disconnect between the state and society. Yeah, it's an odd uh, dichotomy where, at least in theory in Russia, you do have elements of a free press, yeah. but you have moral repression. Maybe just before we finish, could you give us an advert for your new research project? Because you were telling me about it just before we started, and I thought it was fascinating. So I just started working on a new research project that looks at China's global uh, media exports or expansion of its global media models, including the export of sort of different governance features of the media to other countries, in particular other authoritarian states. So I'm not sure exact case studies I'll be comparing it, but for now I might be starting in Africa, so looking at Ethiopia, where there's a lot of collaboration between uh, the government and the Chinese government and Ethiopian government in terms of media management and investments in the media industry from China and training of journalists, where I'm trying to look at it, what sort of values and norms are being kind of transmitted from China to these other states, and to what extent are they really being, you know, uh, embraced by local society or local, uh, local groups and activists and um, officials as well. So the other side of the project is to see maybe how China is also being investigated by various journalistic groups within those countries. So not just kind of collaborating and buying into this model, but also questioning it and kind of reasserting their own norms, ideas, and their own ways of critique. So it's going to be kind of looking at the same, in some ways, similar dynamics of interaction and, and tensions, but also collaboration, but in a global context, seeing where this kind of, where these features can go outside of the national sphere of China. That's, that's where I'm going. Great project. Anyway, please join me in uh, thanking Maria for a very <laughs> stimulating discussion. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.